I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Mighty Eights podcast, the podcast about the people, planes and the places of the United States 8th Army Air Force during World War II. I'm Johan Tasker and with me is military historian Mike Peters and very special podcast guest Steve Andrews. In this episode we've come to the small Suffolk village of Broome near the market town of Eye in the east of England. We're standing outside the Oaksmere Country House Hotel at the end of a majestic avenue lined with lime trees, close to the recently unveiled memorial to a B-17 flying fortress and its crew which crashed near this very spot 80 years ago. This flying fortress was among the first aircraft in the mighty 8th Air Force to be fitted with a new type of radar and it was shrouded in secrecy. The plane went down on November 10th, 1943, shortly after takeoff, narrowly missing the lime trees we're standing by, killing everyone on board and four people on the ground too. And exactly what this plane was doing largely remains a mystery to this day. Steve Andrews, a mystery that you've been investigating. Yeah, that's right. Um, this fortress was from the 813th Bomb Squadron, of the 482nd Bomb Group. It was formed during the summer of 1943 at Oakenbury, which is about 60 miles away from here. And the plane and its crew had stayed overnight at Thorpe Abbotts before taking off to fly back to Oakenbury. But unfortunately, they never did make it back. Mike, this B-17, it was carrying a new type of radar equipment. Yeah, the uh, H-2S radar was a, a British invention which had been developed to allow RAF Bomber Command to, to bomb at night to find targets. And it was part of a an array of specialist developments that had been put on Bomber Command aircraft. We started with, with G and with Oboe, which are basically guidance systems to get you over the target. But this was different. This was a radar made smaller, able to be fitted onto an aircraft. So you could pick out things like coastlines, rivers, particularly water features. You could pick those out quite well. So that would help you to navigate to get to the target. So H2S radar was cutting-edge technology uh, going into 1943. The RAF had already used G and Oboe, which were essentially navigational guidance systems like radio beams that you could lock onto and when they crossed over you on the target. So give you the rough area of a town, a city, a dockyard, whatever you were trying to bomb. But more accuracy was needed. So H2S radar could be fitted to a Lancaster or a Halifax or, or whatever. And that allowed the crew with the specialist operators on board to 
pick out features via radar via a radar screen but not the clear pictures we see today in the 21st century this would just give you a fuzzy outline of a coastline or a, a harbor a river you notice i'm talking about water features the water and coast the contrast between land and sea stood out quite clearly relatively speaking on the radar so it was quite good for that so if you were bombing hamburg for example or a target on the coast it was ideal for that so it was another piece of technology that got the bomb off stream onto the target so this as you say was cutting edge stuff the most accurate system that they had at the time yeah so if you if you think back to the early development of, of radar which a lot of which takes place here in in suffolk uh manor and martlesham heath and places like that these are huge ground-based installations which need a lot of power trained operators and lots of buildings and, and an antenna array of some kind by the time we get to 1942 we're already looking at fitting these radar systems into four engine aircraft so the h2s is is the embodiment of this technology you can actually take a radar set and fit it to a lancaster and when you're flying at night you can use that radar to look down through cloud to look through through the darkness to pick out a coastline a harbor a river a major river or something like that. you notice i'm talking about water features and that's because of the contrast between land and sea water and, and, and ground so that's quite clear relatively speaking on the screens of the time so it's you've got your navigator with his map you've got your astral navigation you've got your g you've got your obo but you've also now got h2s which you you can lead a stream of bombers onto a target and, and i know that you're very much closer than you would have been using h2s so it's highly accurate, or at least highly accurate for the time. It's also really, really expensive. How are the RAF using it? Well, you just simply can't make enough of these H2S sets to, to put one on every aircraft. So in the summer of 1942, the RAF have developed what they, they eventually becomes the Pathfinder Force. So these are specialist squadrons with all the latest technology, but also with the best navigators and the best pilots, people who've done a lot of missions and understand the conditions over target now, are proven navigators, combined with this technology and these Pathfinder squadrons lead the attacks of the stream of bombers. By the time they get to a nighttime raid target, it's already illuminated. There are flares being dropped on the target to market, different colours, etc. And there's a steady stream of Pathfinders doing a relief in place, maintaining those flares. So as the stream of bombers, which stretches back over miles, arrive on the target, they know they're bombing whatever colour flares they're bombing. They know that's the target. So the navigators are going to get them there as an individual aircraft. The bomb aimers are going to check, but actually they've got the assurance that the Pathfinder force has already been there and marked the target. So that's the, the RAF concept of how they employ Pathfinder. The RAF are bombing at night. The Americans were bombing in daylight, but they soon realised that the same concept could be useful for them. We've talked about this before, Johan, in, in previous podcasts, where the whole doctrine of American daylight bombing is based on the Norden bomb site, precision bombing, avoiding civilian targets, and picking out ammunition factories and relatively important military targets. The reality of doing that compared to what was tried in the US in, on desert ranges was... Most of the time when they're flying, certainly through the winter of 1942 into spring 1943, they're bombing through what the Americans call overcast. They're trying to bomb through cloud. And the Norden bomb site is an optical target indication system. So if you can't see the target, you really are stuck. So they start to think, well, how can we get around this? And what have the, what have the Brits done to, uh, to, do, to bomb on that? How are they doing it? So the H2S very quickly comes into the frame. Although... The 8th Air Force do try G and they do try OBA with limited success and it's not really what they want. They want something that can 
look down and, and find the target through cloud. So, Mike, who's the driving force behind this idea? That's a really good question because, you know, it's a very small nucleus of people that start off the 8th Air Force in in UK. And it's a guy who comes across with Ica right at the start who uh, takes on that challenge. And it's a guy called Lieutenant Colonel, Colonel William S. Cowart, Jr., who, yeah, in 1943, uh, he is really uh, uh, enthused by the Pathfinder concept and in mid-43 flies back to DC to put his case to say that we need a Pathfinder force, we need to take best practice from the British and we need to copy that and we're going to form a specialist unit. So, uh, yeah, so he, he is the driving force behind the Pathfinder idea and it leads to the formation of the 482nd uh, Pathfinder bomb group who are the first heavy bomb group pathfinder units formed outside the u.s every other bomb group has gone through the formation and training cycle in the u.s and then deployed to the eto and the eto being the european theater of operation that's right exactly right but the 42nd are formed here as a, a generic indigenous force to to spearhead the attacks this was among the first planes to be fitted with this h2s radar equipment as you say fledgling technology but the crew were highly experienced and highly skilled too Yes, they were, because this technology is so highly valued, you've got to give put the best people on the job. And you're trying to evolve a new spearhead force. This Pathfinder force is going to lead all of your missions, so you're not going to give anybody the job. And you've got to consider the backdrop that even at this stage of the war, the, the 8th Air Force and the other American Air Forces in Europe are expanding exponentially. So there are new people arriving all the time. Also, there's the attrition rate. We're losing people every raid, every mission. We're losing people. So there's a core, a core of people between that who are actually completing their full combat tours or potentially, as in this case, have flown with the Royal Air Force before America entered the war. So there are people out there who have the knowledge and the combat experience to do what you need them to do. You've just got to find them, select them and be sure they're the right people to do that job. And that uh, could be a paperwork shift, commanding officers' recommendations, all those things, and, of course, the interviews. But it's also... Are they actually the right right people? And will they gel as a crew? Do you bring them as individuals or do you bring a whole crew to do that? And certainly when we look at the formation at Alconbury of, of the 482nd, there's a, quite a rigorous process that goes on to find the best of the best to do this job. Because essentially you're relying on one single aircraft. You can send hundreds of aircraft out, one, maybe two Pathfinder aircraft with those and they're the only ones that are going to be able to find the target, identify it in bad weather so that you can bomb. You cannot afford to go wrong. You need the right people with the best technology to do that. So, Steve, tell us about the crew here. The crew actually on the plane that day was made up of Arthur Reynolds, who was the pilot, and this is when we start bringing in other air forces because he was trained by the Canadian Air Force. He'd gone over to Canada before Pearl Harbour and joined the Canadian Air Force. But unlike the co-pilot, he'd actually elected to transfer back to the U.S. Army Air Force, eventually joining the 91st Bomb Group of the Mighty 8th, flying combat missions from November 1942. Three days actually before this crash, he'd led the first combat wing of the 1st Air Division. But as I said, the co-pilot, Jack, his path was similar, but very different in some ways. He'd actually, again, he was from Long Island. He'd um, joined the Canadian Air Force before Pearl Harbor. Uh, and he'd actually trained and ended up in Britain. He'd actually flown with the RAF on detachment and joined 57 Squadron, based at RAF Scampton beside the Dambusters. He was a highly decorated pilot, and he'd flown nearly, we think, about 40 missions by the time of the crash. 
Yeah, he had actually been trained towards the end of 1943 as a pathfinder with the RAF. So for the American Air Force, especially the 8th Air Force fledgling pathfinders, his knowledge with H2S and flying these pathfinder missions was invaluable. You then have uh, the radar mechanic on board, Herman Kalusik. Well, Herm he was known as. He was from a farming family. And uh, Herm's background is actually he wanted to be aircrew. He was too big. Being obviously a farm boy, he couldn't fit in the turrets. So he ended up by being a mechanic. And obviously he had a very good aptitude to this uh, and was then trained on the H2S. And he happened to be on that flight to make sure the H2S was operating for the mission that didn't happen. And unfortunately, yeah, paid the ultimate price. So, Mike, these were people from all sorts of different backgrounds, a microcosm of, uh, of 1940s America, as it were. Yeah, that's right. And, and that's, that's absolutely right, because, you know, this is a volunteer army. This is a, a people's war, a citizen's war, whichever you want to look at it. So people go through the, the en- enlistment process and they want to fly. Uh, and what I do find interesting is the demographics of the crew, the officer cadet programme and the enlisted guys, where they all come from different all different geographic places in the world but also different levels of society but they all get melded into into a crew and then into a, into a squadron then into a bomb group and that's that's quite fascinating really and b-17s would usually have a crew of 10 but on this flying fortress there were 13 yeah because uh, the 482nd is based at alconbury and as i said earlier the uh, these pathfinder aircraft are farmed out they literally go out in all different directions to different to, to lead different bomb groups on the mission and because it's new technology, it's quite temperamental. So they take their specialist radar technicians with them on board. They don't take them on the missions, but they go the night before or the day before to join the mission planning cycle to make sure the aircraft is serviceable and keep, keep an eye on the, on the radar because it's, as I said, temperamental. So that's the reason why this particular aircraft is carrying 13 people, not the usual 10. So Steve, and as we've said, this H2S radar system, it was fledgling technology, but this wasn't the first time that it had been used. No, um, the first operational use of H2S uh, was by the RAF, but only a few months earlier, at the end of January. Um, the first 8th Air Force Pathfinder-led mission was on the 23rd of September. And even though the plane that crashed here at the Oaksmere um, was due to fly on that mission, um, it had problems and, and the radar set wasn't working, so it missed out on that. Then eventually flew out on the 9th of November, um, she set out along with four other aircraft, ending up at Thorpe Abbotts to lead the mission the next day. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to the Mighty Eighth Podcast with me, Johan Tasker, military historian Mike Peters, and very special podcast guest Steve Andrews. We're at the crash site of a B-17 flying fortress in Suffolk, England, looking at what happened and why, and the stories of the people involved. So they get to Thorpe Abbotts on the evening of the 9th of November, and they set off, or they prepare to set off 
on the 10th. And I guess, Steve, it's a morning very much like a morning here today. Hazy sky, November morning, a plane full of high-tech radar equipment, an experienced crew ready to go, and then for some reason or another, the mission's cancelled. What's going on? We didn't know for sure. We surmised the mission was cancelled before any detailed planning or any of the crew briefings had taken place. Uh, I only recently found out that the mission being cancelled is quoted in Harry Crosby's classic book, A Wing and a Prayer. He actually states that he, as group navigator and the 100th commander, Colonel Harding, would have flown on 5793 if the mission hadn't have been cancelled that morning. We got to surmise that it was actually cancelled fairly early on because of weather over Europe or something like that, but that's something we still don't know 100%. And Mike, this sort of cancellation, is it is it usual, is it unusual? They're going back to Alconbury. Yes, yeah, it's... it's pretty much the norm you know you, you can plan as much as you like but the weather you need you, as we said before you need w- clear weather for takeoff clear weather on the route you need clear weather over the target and you also need to know that you can actually get back so forecasting the weather is, is of critical importance to to do that uh, and things can also change priority wise where that target is no longer the the highest priority let's switch to another target so let's stop that planning cycle or you know uh, we there, there are a host of different reasons but the biggest one always is the weather and and the reason for the return to Alconbury well we don't actually know why why that aircraft took off that morning but I can 99% given all that we do know that the Pathfinder force was centralized at Alconbury that it was uh, it went back into Alconbury before it was recycled and rebriefed and sent out onto another mission or to another bomb group and that's where the servicing pattern was so the tools and the technicians and all Alcabri was the hub for the Pathfinder force. You know, where else would they be going? This mission has been scrubbed, so uh, we're not going to stay with this bomb group. We're going. To, our aircraft needs service, and the crew for the ground crew for this aircraft will be at Alcabri. Technical specialists who manage the radar will be at Alcabri, and the best practice and briefing package and allocation of resources is all done at Alcabri. So this aircraft, in my my view, is going back to Alcabri to rebrief and recycle. And when the plane does take off, Steve, it doesn't get very far at all. No, unfortunately not. We know from the Alconbury Tower log that she took off at 10.20 that morning and shortly after there, there was a fire in the cockpit. We got surmised a decision was made to head to I Airfield, which was being built at the time. Uh, the official accident reports paints a picture of the pilot Arthur Reynolds fighting the fire. Yet as far as we know, the flight only lasted around 15 minutes. We've read that from the East Suffolk Police report. Um, it has the crash time around about 10.30 5 a.m. when she must encounter the avenue of lime trees which are beside us here um, at the Oaksmere. So we've got the tower records from Alconbury. The official accident report has a little bit more detail in it. There are also witness statements. Yes, these are really important and from these it could be seen that um, she was flying really low and the eyewitness, um, we have a Corporal Wilhelm, he saw her pulling up to avoid the trees and then nosedive down stalling out and disappearing from view, uh, then seeing the flames and smoke appearing straight away. So some more information then, but, but not very much. But there is some colour film footage, which I find really unusual. In the 1940s, there is some actual colour footage of the aftermath of the accident. Yeah, this is amazing. And actually, colour film, you had Kodak and a lot of the American servicemen got their hands on this and brought it over. So this film, as you say, is just amazing to have. 
very sobering to watch as well. It confirms the eyewitness account from the um, army lieutenant who was there, Sumner Mieselman. He was stating that you know the plane had, had, had the flares were going off ten or fifteen minutes after it crashed. So this lag in time um, with the special target marking bomb load going off explains how servicemen had time to arrive with his camera and capture the carnage. As you say, to, to have that footage is amazing. So there is a coloured film, the, the coloured footage, but the relatives of the people involved, the crew involved, they found it really, really difficult to get to the bottom of what happened. Yeah, especially... Arthur's brother, John Reynolds, he was a pilot as well, had his own career. He flew super fortresses out in the Pacific. So he was devastated, as the whole family was, to hear of his brother's death. And he tried for many years to find out the details of the crash. He he knew that he'd crashed in Broome and and had ended in a very big fireball, but that was it. He'd always suspected there was something a bit more about it, but unfortunately he couldn't get the records. They were obviously, because the H2S radar, they were still um, very much secret. And when he even did get some records, they were really redacted and and very little information. Mike, frustrating though it was for the relatives and indeed for us here today, this level of secrecy wasn't unusual, was it? No, it's not. And even today, we we periodically hear about in in the news that uh, after 30 or 40 years, some papers have been released to put to the public but some haven't they're still kept back i don't think it's anything that sinister in this case i think actually it was all secret because the radar was involved this is one of the very very first pathfinder aircraft so that would be quite highly classified and kept away from public view and the american you've got a set of records in the usa and a set of records in the uk and different governments managing that and also we've got to remember the complexities of maintaining hard copy records files reams and reams of paper that have been stored away locked away and forgotten as not important at the time and of course they are very important to the families who want to know every single facet of this and what happened why their relatives were killed but if you take a more parochial view it's just about time effort and where is it and does it really really matter or or to to the the government at the time it's it's a small one aircraft crash which is a tragedy for those involved obviously and an absolute tragedy for the family who want to know more and quite naturally so want to know a lot more but uh, to find that information is is still going to be difficult even if the government says yeah you can you can find it but they're gonna have to let you go through all the kinds of secret stuff to find it so it's it ever was it so i'm afraid you're listening to the Mighty Eighth podcast with me, Johan Tasker, military historian Mike Peters, and very special podcast guest Steve Andrews. We're at the crash site of a B-17 flying fortress in Suffolk, England, looking at what happened and why, and the stories of the people involved. So Steve, to get to the bottom of what happened, it's taken 80 years. It's taken 80 years to get this memorial erected that we're standing next to today. And for decades, the crash site remained unmarked. Yes, like so many other parts of the UK, and especially East Anglia, there's so many crash sites. In fact, there's another four crash sites close to this um, site, and even one on the same field. But not all sites, you say, are actually marked or got memorials. Uh, Many are still unmarked, but all you need is the spark of interest, either by relatives, obviously, researchers, locals. Uh, And in this case, with this memorial... You had all three. You basically had researchers who found the story of the plane fascinating, 
relatives want enclosure because of the secret of the H2S making it difficult to find out all the details. And then once the people with that passion start talking to local residents, it just sort of sparked the, the journey that we've been on over the last, well, just around about 12 months. People do say, why this crash and that? But it, it, it kind of had its own legs. It's kind of the memorial uh, was meant to be, it felt like, in the end. And what sort of memorial is it? It's been a long journey trying to get it sorted out. It's, um, we, we wanted something close to the crash site, but the Oaksmere itself, where the plane, we think, clipped the trees, was just heaven sent. The, the situation, as you can see here, with, with the Country House Hotel, Fraser, who owns it, was so invested in the history of his building, and he's been on side all the way through. So with the anniversary date being the 10th of November, it was, it was a blessing and a curse as well. It put time pressures on us to get to that point. And we wanted to do the research. We wanted to get as many people here to the unveiling dedication, but we had the time limit. But in the end, everyone pulled together. We had a few hiccups along the way. Um, the planning permission was a little bit of a, <laughs> an unknown quantity to the last moment. But once we got the planning permission in, everything was done in the way of the world of these things happen the last three weeks. Um, so it was kind of backs to the wall, but everyone pulled together in the circumstances. And it's a fitting memorial, isn't it? Yes, um, there's so many different ways you can put a memorial into the landscape. Um, we wanted it to blend in with the Oaksmere, the Country House Hotel, so we decided on a brick plinth um, with recessed plaques in that so we could put some other bits and pieces in. Um, a local stonemason has done such a good job with the top tablet as well. We've got some logos which incorporate the 8th Air Force, the Pathfinder unit of the 482nd, and yeah, it's a, a black granite top, uh, and it's got as much information without being over the top on there and obviously the main part is the crew so their names will be remembered going forward and we're very lucky that some of the relatives of the air crew have managed to be here for the unveiling of the memorial john price from seattle washington pilot arthur reynolds was your great uncle what kind of man was he um, I obviously never knew arthur um, that he was taken from us before I could ever meet him um, but I knew about him. He was a big part of our family. My grandfather, although his brother died early in the war, he was given the option to um, come back home because that was the rule in the U.S. at the time. And uh, he said, nope, I'd love to stay in and kill some Germans. So he stayed in and eventually I spent, I think, 33 years as career Air Force. And uh, once he retired, he spent a considerable energy trying to understand what had happened to his brother because nobody really understood or would tell him the real story and the United States government redacted pretty much everything that they sent back and he knew it had something to do with radar um, he had managed to use letters between both himself and his mom and Arthur and his mom and start to piecemeal things together um, from different timelines and uh, yeah it turns out he was really close to what actually happened so. And how long did that take to find out? I mean, this was a, a sort of a top-secret mission, as it was. I think my grandfather probably spent five or six years struggling to deal with uh, Freedom of Information Act requests and then waiting for those to finally then come back with almost nothing. And it turns out that there were just a few select people over here um, on this side who actually knew the answer. We just didn't know they were there. Um, but this is probably a 15 or 20 year exercise. Um, there are letters from my grandfather to his mother 
um, that express how big of a deal it was. He was very close to his brother. It was his older brother. He looked up to him. Um, Arthur was known to be a bit of a rogue. He, uh, when everything first laid out, Arthur was not in any, um, he didn't have any interest in waiting for the U.S. to get into the war. So he went straight to Canada and joined their Air Force, and that's how he got over here to the U.K. before the U.S. was even involved. Um, and uh, how he managed to get a reputation, which I believe probably is why he was chosen to be the pilot for, you know, running this plane and uh, this secret mission or this uh, effort they were trying to do to see if they could use um, land imaging radar in a way to change the face of bombing, which ultimately it did, um, and how pathfinders were used to really uplift all bombing squadrons to be much more accurate. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's pretty exciting. You must be really proud of what he did. Super proud. It's both himself and my grandfather have really you know, distinguished careers. It's, um, you can only be proud to see. And then, um, it's just, uh, overwhelming to see the memorial, uh, itself, uh, manifest itself in a way that you'd, you never knew that anybody else even knew or cared. It's, it's, um, it's pretty, pretty spectacular. And 80 years ago, it seems a long time in some respects, but then today it seems it's very much here and now as well. Well, it's it's a shame that uh, my grandmother isn't still around to talk because she could tell stories that would make it sound as if it was last week. So, yeah, it's still very close to our hearts and our family um, since we revolved around the military our whole life. And, um, you know, all the places we'd been in the world, it was because that's where we were stationed or where he was stationed. And so all our life events really circle around everything related to everything about the United States military. And, and at that time, that meant... Uh, being here and trying to win a war that we weren't sure if we were going to win or not. John Price, thank you. Vicky Chudner from Delaware. Herman Kalusik was your uncle. He was a radar mechanic and he was uh, being finishing his training, actually. He was working with a staff sergeant that was helping him, you know, along. So um, the family really, never, as with the other families of the crew members, because it was a top-secret mission... Their plane had the first radar unit installed. We didn't know much, you know. And so I think the sad part is that my grandmother and my father and all the other siblings, you know, passed on without ever knowing exactly what happened. They just knew it was a plane crash. So you, you say Herman. He was known as Herm. How did you yeah. find out what happened uh, to him uh, uh, and the um, importance and significance of, of, of the mission that he was on? Um, well, I did a lot of research. Um, for years, it was dead-ended because everything was classified. And then I um, found some articles online. Um, I ran into online uh, Diane Bingham, who's seated in there, who had done... She had actually lived near the crash site. And so I was doing research, and she saw me on Ancestry or somewhere, and we got in touch and exchanged information. So she helped me a lot. Um, found some books that had been written on the subject, finally found something in print, and then I got hold of a, of the um, uh, the crash record and read some more. Then I have re uh, letters that my uncle wrote. Of course, he couldn't say what he was doing, 
But it really helped to know the day-to-day things and where he was trained. I could, you know, follow him around the states and new military bases and his thoughts on it. He wanted to be a gunner, but he grew up on a farm, and he said, my darn big farm boy body won't fit, so I guess I'll try mechanics. And he was actually, I guess, rather good at it. So, yeah. So it's solved a mystery. I mean, was it spoken about? Is, has it been spoken about over the years with, in your family? Oh, yeah. It was, a, it was always a, a big topic. Uh, my cousins and I have been in touch since they knew I was coming here. And we talked about our experiences as children growing up because the ones that were alive when he was in the service were too young to remember him. And I wasn't born yet, as some of the others weren't. But we all came to know him through the stories from our parents and from our grandparents. And my, he was brought back to the States to be buried in our local cemetery. And my grandmother never spoke of him unless we went out to the cemetery with flowers every Sunday. And that's where I learned about my Uncle Herm. Yeah. And 80 years on, he's being remembered today oh, yeah. for posterity. His name's on the yeah, memorial. It yeah. must have been a really special day for it, you today. It was a very special day, and it's, it's hard to describe the, the feeling. Um, there's some, some relief, a lot of pride, some sadness. I shed a few tears, but closure, finally closure. It's hard when you lose a relative, and, and it just it happens, but you don't know why and you're searching for answers and that went on for years and years but uh, I was fortunate enough to to know the story and I only wish that I could share that with my dad and you know the rest of the family and my grandma but you know at least I know and cousins know and most importantly my children will know so well thank you very much for sharing it with us too And Steve, the crew weren't the only ones caught up and killed in the crash. No, unfortunately, uh, on that fateful day, there was actually an East Suffolk County Council work gang. They were clearing the ditches, so they were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. We had an eyewitness who was interviewed in the uh, 1990s, uh, Rose Wingfield, uh, and she'd literally pushed bike to the local shop just past where the crash site is and she didn't recognize charlie burridge who was one of the workmen he was holding the horse by the side of the road she called out morning charlie you aren't digging your own grave are you uh, we he answered to that i hope not ma'am and literally a few minutes later the b17 appeared and crashed into the work crew um, unfortunately killing two outright straight away and then taking the horse as well um, the other two workmen survived until getting to the hospital, one dying soon after and the other one two days later. An amazing story, Steve, and it continues. Yes, yeah, it's, it's amazing. Actually, the uh, memorial uh, has led on to another story. Um, we've always wanted to get as much information about the crew, but obviously also the civilians. Um, we had one photograph of one of the civilians, but due to the actual um, media... We've now got in contact with uh, Walter Clark's grandson. Uh, he's got pictures and stories, uh, but one of the amazing artefacts he got is actually Walter's uh, pocket watch, which he had on him that day. And uh, it's holding something like that, and seeing the pictures of Walter brings the whole story to life. You, you do the research, you read the books, 
but then when you actually look upon the face of this person who died 80 years ago and can hold one of their personal possessions they put in their pocket that morning yeah it's it's just amazing I think the thing for me is that what this whole story shows the American families who've come over here today to the memorial, the the families of the council workers who are also here today, it shows that the Mighty Eighth touched the lives of so many people and continues to do so, not just 80 years ago, but today, very much here in both the States and in England as well. Yes, this journey is just amazing. You talk to people today and... Yes, as you say, it touched their grandparents and their parents. They grew up with it. Um, as the saying goes, the little fields of America. Um, there was the little villages beside these fields, and it touched everyone's life. Uh, and what I've learned from doing this, it, yeah, as you say, it's very relevant today. More and more people are investing in the history of their grandparents. It's now becoming, unfortunately, out of living memory. And I think that gets to the point where people are now thinking, we better talk to these veterans. We better talk to our parents and, and get this information. And, yeah, it's very relevant today. And this memorial, if it's done anything, has brought a lot of people together who didn't know each other for a common interest. Really good. Mike, radar on aircraft, it was eventually to help win the war in Europe. Certainly uh, it was important. And if you believe that the Allied bomber offensive made a difference, and we can argue all day long whether it accelerated the end of the war, then yes, because although these guys had only flown a few missions, this was the very first aircraft fitted with H2S radar. And this was a a real move away for the US Army Air Forces from their doctrine of daylight precision bombing. This was, okay, we're going to bomb through cloud. And we need the apparatus to do that, and it's taken from the RAF, as we discussed earlier. But H2S will lead to H2X, which uh, is more accurate, and that will lead to far fewer missions actually being scrubbed and will we'll maintain some degree of accuracy over just bombing blind, blind through cloud. So yes, yes, these guys did not die in vain. They'd flown, they were proven the equipment and that, that is, goes right back to the hub at Alconbury. Every, everybody is learning and it's like a, a microcosm of the whole 8th Air Force experience. And I keep saying it, how do you grow an Air Force? By experience, by learning lessons, by best practice, by sharing training and all of those things. And this is one incident in a, a galaxy of things that are happening that take the 8th Air Force further, deeper and harder into Germany to bomb the targets that they need to hit. The targets they need to hit and indeed the targets that they did hit. And that's it for this episode of the Mighty 8th podcast, the podcast about the people, planes and the places of the United States 8th Army Air Force during World War II. The mystery then of B-17 Flying Fortress 42-5793 finally solved to a large extent and the crew and the others killed in the crash finally honoured with a memorial here at the crash site, one of the first Pathfinder B-17s of the mighty 8th Air Force. If you've enjoyed this episode, do subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and please do leave us some feedback and a review. You can also catch up with us at our website, mighty8thpodcast.com, and we'll be back again with another episode of the Mighty 8th Podcast in the not-too-distant future. But for now, thank you for listening. I'm Johan Tasco. Goodbye. And I'm Mike Peters. Goodbye.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.